Hello, Natasha, and hello, listeners. Welcome. It's so nice to be able to chat with you. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Scott. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Oh, well, I, having read your book, I'm so excited to share information about it with our readers. Uh, you know, you, you're not a stranger to Booktopia readers, no doubt, from your many books. How many are we up to now? I was talking to an interview yesterday and I think she said six. Six, six, six. So I should have counted before we started (laughs) recording. But each one, I think, you know, you just get better and better and your research and your stories are so engrossing. And here today we're talking about the Riviera House, which is uh, upon us as at this time of recording in a couple of days coming out. And uh, even though most of the country's in lockdown, we're still spreading the word and hoping people go to their bookshops and to Booktopia to buy their copies so so thank you for coming to give us some insight in Perth where you're not quite as restricted as we are in the rest of in the eastern side of the country no, we're very lucky over here I wake up and cross my fingers every day that it lasts yes exactly exactly well let's not talk politics and COVID. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk Paris so the Riviera house um, it's this one is set in wartime Paris under occupation um, it has a then and now narrative which we're used to from your books um, um, and it surrounds the life in the historical uh, narrative about, of Eliane Dufort, who's an art expert who works at the Louvre. And, uh, and then there's a contemporary story about Remy Lang, who has a vintage fashion business, and she comes to the Riviera uh, to overcome a, a personal loss. So that's just in a nutshell. But tell us a little more about their stories, without giving anything away, of course, and how these two women's stories are are connected with this. I love the story about the, the the mystery painting on the childhood wall. Sure. So as you said, the main character in the historical storyline is called Eliane, and she is an art lover who's had to give up her art to support her family. She works at the Louvre until the Germans occupy Paris in the Second World War in 1940. And then she's asked to work at a different museum, a museum called the Jeux de Pomme. And the first day she uh, approaches the museum, she sees that it's surrounded by armed Luftwaffe guards. And then once she walks into the museum, she sees so much art, more art than any of the world's biggest museums could possibly gather together for an exhibition. And she wonders where the art has come from and why it's there. And thus begins her dangerous mission to work with the French resistance to try to protect all of this stolen artwork. The second storyline involves Remy, who has gone to this amazing house on the Riviera to um, escape a loss. And when she's there, she finds a catalogue, Herman Goring's catalogue of artworks that he stole during the war. And in that catalogue, she finds a photograph of a painting that has always hung on her childhood bedroom wall in Sydney. And she has no idea how it is that a painting that she owns could once have been stolen by Goring. So she begins a quest to find out what that connection is to her personally and to the painting. Yeah, it's a wonderful mystery. What could be possibly the connection? Uh, We won't give it away, but readers will find out. And it's a really, really good story when you discover the connection between the two women. So as in all your books, uh, Natasha, the Riviera House is inspired, of course, by real history. Tell us a little about um, Rose Valland, who is a character in the book, but was a real character in uh, occupied France, uh, Paris during the war. Um, what did you uncover in your research about her and the Nazi stolen artwork that you decided to weave into the Riviera House? 
Yeah, Rose was a remarkable character. And as soon as I came across her, I knew I wanted to write a book about her because I was really intrigued. You know, ordinarily when we hear stories of the French resistance during the Second World War, they're stories about people being saved, you know, downed RAF pilots or Jewish families, etc. Um, but here was a story of a woman who was risking her life to save artworks. And I was really intrigued by that and I wanted to dig more into that. So Rose worked as the, she was the curator of the Jus de Pont Museum in Paris and she was demoted to the role of caretaker when the Nazis occupied Paris. Um, they shut down most of the art galleries in Paris um, and they used the Jus de Pomme to store all of the artworks they were stealing from the Jewish families in Paris and across France. Um, because obviously the Nazi views on Jewish people, as we all know, were, were quite shocking and they considered their paintings to be ownerless, so therefore they could steal them. So the paintings were all gathered in the Jus de Pomme and then they were catalogued by the Nazi art historians and sent away to uh, enrich Adolf Hitler's collection for his Führer Museum and also Hermann Göring's collection um, at his home in Karrenhall in Germany. And Rose pretended she didn't speak German and she actually did. And so she used that knowledge of the language to spy on all of the activities in the museum. And she recorded the names of all the paintings that were coming into the museum, the names of the artists, the names of the families who the paintings were stolen from. And then she tried to find um, all that, tried to kind of crack the secret codes to work out where the paintings were being sent, where they were being stored, because our hope was that at some time in the future, perhaps when Paris might finally be liberated, she might be able to help track down all their stolen paintings and return them to their original owners. And she she was quite remarkable. You know, she was sacked from the museum a number of times um, because they suspected she was up to something. Uh, Colonel von Burr, who was the head of the ERR, the organization that managed the a theft of the artworks, I guess, told her at one point he was going to take her to the border and liquidate her. So it was hugely dangerous, but she just kept coming back to work and hiding what she was doing behind this very demure, quiet exterior. And then after the war, she joined the Allied efforts to track down and recover the stolen artworks. And she was responsible for helping to uncover and restore thousands of paintings. Um, there are still lots of paintings missing, sadly, um, and they turn up occasionally year after year, but I think, you know, there are tens of thousands that might be lost forever. Nobody knows where they are or who has them. So it's a story that, you know, still has echoes even in contemporary times. And um, I wanted to, you know, I hadn't heard of her and I was shocked that, you know, so much history involving women um, has been lost to time. So I wanted to bring her back to people's notice and show people how brave and inspirational she was. Yes, I love how in your books you put a great historical afterword uh, where you tell us, you know, which parts are real and, and, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and, and to realise, you know, reading this, that she, she is very much real uh, and survived the war and made such a contribution to the the finding and keeping of, of these works of art and not just stolen ones from Jewish families but also uh, works of art that disappeared from the French museums themselves and were squirreled away by by the Nazis I mean Goering would would come through as he did in your book and and choose the ones he wanted with uh, you know the the uh, curator in charge the Nazi curator in charge you know arranging to send them to him was that, that character based on um, Bruno Loger yeah, that's right. So there is a character about yeah, in the book who's based on, on Bruno. Um, 
uh, Bruno was an interesting character. You know, he was an art curator um, and he worked with Goring as basically his personal art assistant, I suppose, you know, hand selecting paintings for his collection because the, the view was that, um, uh, Adolf Hitler had a very, I mean, both Adolf Hitler and Goering had very particular artistic tastes and, and Hitler's was, you know, there was no, no modernist art, modernist art was considered to be degenerate and, and Hermann Goering's tastes extended to, you know, nudes and those kinds of paintings. So he, you know, helped him kind of find and track down those kinds of artworks. Um, but he was also, you know, it's interesting what happened to him after the war. Um, you know, he didn't, suffer too badly considering the role he played and you know there's been reports that they've recently found paintings of his hidden in a swiss bank vault that he stole during the war and i i can't he, he died not too long ago didn't he yeah. and he continued as an art dealer shame yeah. shamelessly uh, till the end of his life yeah it's astonishing how many of those men got away with it um and didn't face any repercussions for what they did um so as i say it is this story that you know continues on into our time because it's like how how could we you know have let them do that well you open history to so many readers with your books and you know i i, I should uh, berate you for spending my costing me so much money because you sent me down a rabbit hole uh, as your books do you know you get interested in the subject you want to find out the real story and through booktopia now i've bought a half a dozen other books of non-fiction about the stolen nazi art and the the uh, re reclaiming of jewish family art you know generations later it's a whole thing is fascinating but but your books don't just have the history you've also got romance in there for those who are looking a bit for a bit of a love story there's a great love story in the Riviera house um, which even for a bloke like me I found uh, I found you know intriguing and I enjoyed it's not because it's not too much you don't go overboard and make it a romance novel but yeah. there's a love interest that keeps the readers interested who are looking for that sort of love in the in the story too so yeah I think that's important especially at these times we're all looking for a bit of an escape I mean I know that you know in some places having a love story in your book is kind of you know frowned upon and seen to make the work a lesser work of literature but you know love is a beautiful thing and we all love people so I don't know how, why that there is that stigma attached to it um but you're right I like to kind of prioritize the the work of the women and the extraordinary things they were doing but to then have as a secondary storyline this you know hopefully beautiful love story that people can just get swept away in and forget all their worries and you know go wherever these characters are going yeah and it, it kind of ensures to make a great movie too and i hope it does <laughs> that would be my dream come true yeah i could just see it as either limited miniseries or movie It'd be great absolutely so can i so so let I want to ask you a bit about why Paris, Natasha. It's not just in this book, but almost all your books uh, really are set in Paris. Um, and the next one that you're already, you know, working on for next year is set in Paris post-war, I believe. Yeah. Do, do you see yourself as sort of a Paris story chronicler? Is it just a passion for the city or, or might we see a book uh, set elsewhere? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I guess there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, there's, I guess, a um, purely practical reason in that 
often when I'm researching a book, I'll find a person or an anecdote or a piece of history that won't fit into the book I'm currently writing, but I'm really fascinated by and want to write about. And so therefore, if you're researching within a country or within an era or within a, a kind of an area, then you tend to find stories connected to that, that place or time, etc. But also, I mean, I learned French in high school. I worked for a French company for a number of years, L'Oreal Paris, um, and I still speak the language relatively fluently and I've traveled there a lot. So um, I always think that when you write about things you love, hopefully readers can feel that love and that passion. So um, I love Paris, so it makes sense to, to keep writing about it. But my, in my book for next year, we do have an Italian connection and setting and a Swiss setting as well. So I have um, explored a little bit more of Europe in next year's book. <laughs> there, there you go. We'll look forward to that. So there's other elements that are in common with your books. You're most to have a dual narrative, as I mentioned earlier, a little love story. There's fashion, which is your background, uh, always a mystery. And I like that you normally have an Australian character. So there's an Aussie connection in there in the story, even though they're set in Europe. Is this sort of the, the Lester formula? And how, how do you decide the right mix of then and now do you, do you have a process for determining the balance of all these things in your book or, or each story does it just develop on its own take its own um it's very organic is probably uh too fine a word to describe my writing process it's, it's chaotic that would be the best word to describe it um i always i'm not the kind of person who can plan or plot out a story before i begin writing i've tried that and it just doesn't work for me um, but somehow it takes some of the magic away and also my mind just can't think that far ahead i have to write the story to find out what it is so for me normally when i'm starting out i'll know um the historical person i'm writing about or the the, the facts of history that i want to cover like the um, the character of Rose Valland and the Nazi art thefts during the Second World War. And then in the contemporary storyline, I might know, um, you know, there's some very scant facts. Like I, I want to write about someone who collects vintage fashion and they're going to live in this fabulous house on the Riviera and that's about it. And so then I have to kind of sit down and write the story to work out what's going on. And for me, it's always writing the historical storyline first because that's usually the biggest and most important part of the book. It's the anchor. Um, yeah, that's right, it is. And then when I do that, it helps me maybe work out how the contemporary storyline could be connected. But And so then I write the contemporary storyline, but mostly I usually get about three quarters of the way through that. And I still don't quite know how it all works. So then I have to go back and rewrite the historical storyline again and then rewrite the contemporary. And then it starts to come together a little bit more each time. And then I'll probably weave those two together and maybe the third draft or something like that. So that doesn't happen until, until quite late when I'm a bit more certain and sure of what's going on. Um, but it's interesting, I do think that um, like for next year, um, the thought of sitting down to write another dual contemporary historical narrative was um, I couldn't, it's not that I couldn't face it, it was just that I felt that I'd done that a bit and I didn't want to run into the trap of rewriting the same story over and over again. I think there are only a certain number of ways you can connect those right. two storylines. Um, so to keep things fresh, next year's book doesn't have that dual ah, okay. historical. Yeah, I've um, gone off on a, on a different tangent for that one, which was fun. <laughs> well, apart from not want, wanting to make sure you don't fall in the trap of potentially writing the same novel, you, 
you want to shake it up for yourself too, for your own interest. You know, you don't want to feel like, oh, here I am again, uh, exactly. you know, d doing the same sort of thing. So that, exactly. that's more interesting for you to, to mix it up. Yeah, you always want to sit down and feel um, like you can't wait to get back to writing the book. And when I thought, oh, I don't want to write another dual narrative, I thought, right, you just can't do that because then you'll feel like it's hard work and then it'll, it'll read like hard work. So I just disbanded that idea and went off and did um, something quite different because you're right, you want every book to be better than the one before. And so to do that, you have to always be challenging yourself in some way. And are you quite a disciplined writer? Like when you're writing, you, know, you, you do your research and then do you get up and write a certain number of hours a day and just, you know, sequester yourself in your study and that's writing time? Are you good about routine like that? Yes, I am. And I learned that um, from the early days of writing when I was writing with very small children. I had babies who... Um, I could only write when they napped. That was my only spare time because obviously you can't just sit down and write with a baby because they require quite a lot of attention and focus. They tend to, yes. <laughs> so, you know, they might sleep for an hour and a half and that would be my writing time. And so I couldn't waste any of that hour and a half because that was the only time I had that day. And so I, I hated it at the time because it felt less than ideal that you were always having less time than what you needed. But I look back now and think it was the best thing ever because it taught me to be really disciplined, um, taught me not to waste time. And so now that I have the luxury of a full school day when the kids are at school, um, I do, I just sit down at my desk and treat it like a job. You know, I have contracts, so I've got to deliver books at certain times. So that's also a powerful motivating factor. But I think a lot of writing is, is that self-discipline. You know, there isn't anyone standing over you saying, sit down and write. You have to be the one saying, even if you're tired or feeling a bit sick or or you'd rather go out and have coffee with a friend, actually, you just have to rhyme. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're not here to talk about what I'm doing, but I'm starting to research and write a book myself. And so I know what you mean, because I got excited about, I've got this project, and then I thought, oh, you know, it's not going to write itself. I've yeah. actually, I've actually, it's one thing to be excited to have the idea and the project, but you've actually got to be disciplined and sit down and do it. So I'm glad your, your children helped teach you that discipline. <laughs> and so it's worth worthwhile having children after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. They, they, they were very handy for that. But I think the other thing too is, you know, there's, there's this kind of idea that you've got to be inspired and you've got to, the muse has got to be there to write. And for me, it's um, the muse comes at all the other times when I'm away from my desk, like when I'm going for a run, that's a big part of my writing process. I'll be thinking of scenes and dialogue and ideas. And then the work is actually taking all of that inspiration that I got on my run and sitting down here at my desk and, turning those ideas into words and sentences and paragraphs and chapters and then eventually a story. So there are the two components, but the discipline and the work is a big part of it yeah. as well. So we haven't talked a lot about the contemporary part of the Riviera House and the story of, of Remy, but I want to mention that uh, another element in your book are the, um, the themes about relationships and um, and your resilience and grief and you know uh, family and uh you know remy's story has a lot of that you know as you said she's come to the riviera to overcome a she had a family tragedy and she's she's got to you know trying to move on from that but she also meets a fellow there who happens to live in the with his family in the lovely villa next door um and he's got his own issues about you know um family and children and um, parenting. So they're both slightly damaged in relationships and, and uh, find, you know, each other and each other's company. So apart from looking at historical elements, um, I like the fact that your books have 
this element of things that everybody can relate to, you know, about family and relationships and the challenges of day-to-day -day life and making relationships work. So, you know, you must spend a lot of time getting that woven into your story at the same time and keeping people interested in that aspect of a narrative. Yeah, it's interesting because I think one of the big challenges with writing a dual narrative is that often one storyline can come across as being more interesting than the other storyline. And I don't ever want readers to think, oh, no, I don't want to read this one. I want to skip over that and get back to the historical storyline, say. So you've always got... So there, there can be the temptation to just have the contemporary storyline there as a prop for solving a mystery in the historical time period. But it can't just be that those people in that contemporary storyline have to have their own challenges and their own interests and their own growth, I suppose, their own character development. So it's always thinking about, well, how can I can I do that? What can I give to this character to challenge them and let them show the reader that they're equally as resilient and inspiring and courageous in their own way, even though they're not in the inherent drama of a war. Um, and so it is always trying to tease out what that might be for that particular character. Um, and, you know, I think that just comes from living, really. The more you live, the more people you come across, the more stories that you hear and the more things you think, well, everybody has some level of suffering that they're carrying around with them. And so um, if you think about that, how can I weave that into a character, but um, show how they can perhaps overcome that? Well, I guess like Leanne Moriarty, the best-selling you know, Australian author does with contemporary family issues, that's, that's what all her books are about. You know, you successfully weave that into your, your narratives. And uh, the nice thing about that, and for readers to know, is it means there's something for everyone in, in your books and in the Riviera House. If you're interested in history, if you like mystery, if you like romance, if you like the psychology of day-to-day problems of family and relationships that we all deal with, uh, if you like fashion, uh, any of the above, they're all there. So um, I, I, I hate, we say we shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but people do. And, you know, I look at your books and, and not a lot of men would normally pick them up because they look like female romance stories. But I'm here to tell our listeners that um, you know, your books have all of those elements in it and don't judge it by you know, the beautiful woman in the cover and think, oh, it's just an historical romance. There's so much more to your books and I think men or women can both really, you know, will really enjoy them. Uh, whatever your interest is, there's something in there for everyone. And so you know, kudos to you for weaving all of those elements in so well together as you do in all your books. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. It was funny last year um, when the Paris Secret came out, it's about a group of female pilots and I saw an, an email land in my inbox from a man and I do have quite a few male readers and but he was a pilot, an ex-pilot. I thought, oh no, this is going to be the man sending me an email telling all the things you made about, a mistake, yeah. <laughs> about flying. But it was the exact opposite. He was writing to say he was so impressed with the level of knowledge I had about aviation and flying. And I thought, wow, that's me judging a person by the cover, you know, seeing yeah. the same thing, it's going to be bad. But it was just su such validation to think, okay, well, A, the technical elements are right, but B, you know, here is another example of the fact that, you know, stories are universal. There aren't men's stories and women's stories. We all love stories. Um, yeah, Correct. so it's great. <laughs> and, well, speaking of that one, I learned a lot about aviation and flying during the war from that book. So, you know, your research is really fantastic. And so tell us something about that before we finish. You know, how much of, you know, you, you spend about a, a, you, 
a year doing a book, you know, you've got one almost every year. How much of your time is broken up between your research and your writing? What's the split? So I usually start writing without having done very much research because like I said before, when you don't plan, you've got to uncover what that story is. And for me, if I research too much up front, I would tend to write too much to the research. And so the book would become maybe too weighed down by the research because you always want the research to be enough to um, almost just have the reader be so absorbed in it, they don't notice it, I guess. So then once the first draft is finished, which I write quite quickly in maybe eight to 10 weeks, um, then I'll spend a whole month, usually traveling, obviously not at the moment, <laughs> um, but just immersing myself in, in archives. And you know the, the wonderful thing about archivists is they've overcome all the challenges of people not being able to travel. And I have had so many archives send me, um, you know, scan in and email me documents that I've needed because I haven't been able to go there. So it'll be a month of reading, reading memoirs, memoirs, uh, searching through archival material, um, you know, reading Rose Vallon's memoir in French, for instance, um, all of that kind of stuff. And then back into redrafting and bringing all that research material in and then continuing to keep reading as I keep rewriting um, over the course of the year. So it's a continual process with a big solid month in the middle where that's the only thing I focus on. Mm. Well, that's really interesting. Well, you, the, the, the depth of your research really comes through in the, in the books, uh, Natasha, and I enjoyed you know, reading and reviewing The Paris Secret, which is on the Booktopia blog, and, and The Riviera House, and I'm sure everyone else will too. Now, just give us a little taste for, for next year's, you said it's post-war Paris. Yes, so we're in Paris post-war um, and the book is, the main character is the public relations director of the House of Christian Dior um, and it's her story about what happens to women when they have had these uh, roles during the war where they were doing something really genuinely useful and heroic and then suddenly post-war all the men come back and fill all the jobs and women are no longer seen to be as indispensable right. perhaps as they were during the war. Well, always something to look forward to with you. And uh, for those listeners who haven't read your books, you, they're not in any order. You can pick up any one, but uh, couldn't do uh, worse than starting with The Riviera House, which is out uh, 1st of September, I guess, or 31st of August. And so we wish you great success with it, despite lockdown. We're sorry you can't travel around the country to talk to us in person, but thank you for speaking to us uh, online today so that we can all uh, have the wonderful advantage of getting the background and story behind the story. Thanks, oh, Natasha. Thanks so much for talking to me, Scott. It was lovely to actually meet you at last. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.